Hello and welcome to the Goal Forward podcast, a show all about education and inclusion. I'm Richard Ingram. Today we face a climate emergency. As global temperatures rise and storms, wildfires and droughts make headlines around the world, more and more greenhouse gases are pouring into the atmosphere. We are fast approaching no return tipping points and seem unable to slow down our production and consumption of fossil fuels. This episode of Goal 4 looks at the role that education plays in regard to climate change and climate resilience. It is future generations that will be hardest hit by the climatic changes caused by today's societies, and particularly those in the global south. But it is these generations where our greatest hope lies. As we head towards climate catastrophe, how young people are educated will have ramifications that reach far beyond the walls of their classrooms. Here to discuss this with me is Sarah Beardmore. Sarah heads a global partnership for education, strategic partnerships and capabilities team, where she develops and leads multi-stakeholder initiatives to support education in the global south. With over 20 years of international experience, and by playing a lead role in issues such as climate change, gender equality, financing, equity and inclusion, Sarah is perfectly placed to talk with me about the complex issues of education, inclusion and climate change. She also played a key role in the development of GPE's recent report, Rethinking Education for a Climate Resilient Future. Sarah Bidmore, welcome to Goal 4. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me, Richard. It's a pleasure. Thanks for joining. You're part of a team that's just published a new framework for the Global Partnership for Education called Rethinking Education for a Climate Resilient Future. Perhaps we'll start with a basic question. What has education got to do with climate change and climate resilience? Thanks. That's a a million dollar question. Um, Yeah, so indeed, we've been collaborating with um, Fumio Kagawa and David Selby at uh, Sustainability Frontiers. And we um, are increasingly seeing the impact of climate change on education. But we also know the role that education can and should play in really driving a transition towards a, a greener future. So If you think about it this way, climate change is uh, caused by humans, and that's been well established in the science. Um, And education is the human solution to climate change. Um, It shapes how we see the world, how we live in the world and relate to the world. Um, And really the primary causes of climate change and environmental degradation stem from, you know, a real dysfunction in the way that we're relating to the world right now. Um, so it, it, it is really be, because of uh, our sort of cosmology, the way that we live uh, and relate to, to the natural world that uh, are making us increasingly vulnerable to the worst impacts of climate change. On the other hand, and I think that there's a growing body of evidence, you know, education is absolutely life-saving. You know, it equips people with the knowledge to withstand climate shocks, to prepare for environmental emergencies. You know, a family that knows what to do when a flood is expected can move to higher ground. A village that knows what to plant to withstand drought will be able to have food when when the rains stop. So we, we know actually from, I think, several longitudinal studies that education was actually the single most important social and economic factor associated with a reduction in vulnerability to climate risk. Um, so, so that's the first thing I think, it, it really does save lives. The second thing though, is that it paves the way for green skills, mindsets and livelihoods. 
Um, it provides the foundation not only for, for knowledge and cognitive skills about science, about the way the world works, about how climate interacts with human uh, behavior, but it also helps to really drive the, the values that uh, can inspire a more peaceful coexistence, a more mindful use of our resources, and really ultimately for a respect for life and, and all of the planet's life systems. Um, and ultimately what we need to be able to do is to live in alignment with those values and really change the trajectory that we're on. How important is it then to sort of make the distinction between a good, what some people would call a good education where you're just making sure someone knows all about maths and science and engineering and those people can then go and, I mean, in an extreme example, they'd be well placed to go and design and build a new coal fire power plant. Right. What what's the distinction between that and what we're talking about here, where we're also bringing in the climate discussion to education? Is that an important point? Do you think? Yeah. Well, and I think this goes goes really to the heart of the matter, which is that climate change shouldn't just be a, a module within education uh, that looks at the science and the engineering and the technology. Um, because ultimately, climate change poses an existential threat to our sustained existence on the planet. And if we're really going to address that, we need to actually be looking at how to live with uncertainty, how to manage risk, how to um, learn by doing and take action, um, how to adapt to new environments and, and new conditions. Um, so it, it really does need to extend beyond simply the cognitive skills to uh, interact with the kind of economy as it's structured today, but to be able to imagine a new future and then imagine that new future into existence. Um, and I think nothing is more urgent than that right now. Yeah, there's some really interesting links between how the economy is structured is how education systems are structured. And one certain, I mean, they both kind of support one another. So it's 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 deep deep change in both of those areas, I suppose, is important. I want to ask about um, the fact that it says in the in the, in the framework and in the writing around the framework that education is considered to be an enabler of climate action in key international agreements, such as the Paris Agreement and the SDGs. Is this because of the reasons we were, we've just been talking about? Or are there other reasons that it's been included in those uh, big international commitments? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, I think in, in some ways, you know, education has been enshrined as a human right, you know, since the very first UN agreements um, and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, and so there is a kind of a normative acceptance of, of education as a really fundamental uh, right for, for all people. But in terms of climate change, you know, it, it has come up in, in the Rio uh, conventions. Uh, the Action for Climate Empowerment agenda uh, also sees education as critical. And of course, the Sustainable Development Goals have, have targets around this. Um, and, and I think that that is an acknowledgement, right, that education is fundamental to the mindsets, the skills, and and really the, the capabilities of people to to. Uh, act in the world. The problem is just that despite all of these international commitments, we still see that less of, than half of national curriculum frameworks have reference to climate change. 95% um, of teachers believe it's important or very important to teach about the severity of climate change, 
but they also don't feel like they're very well equipped to do so. Um, and so I think that while we have a lot of wonderful lofty agreements, the, the real challenge is how to turn that into national action plans and implementation frameworks with the accountability mechanisms needed to ensure that these are actually financed and implemented as, as promised. That brings up a, an interesting question, I think, talking about the global effect, because I see in my work a lot that there's a, quite a disparity between the global north and the global south in terms of access to education. And we've seen recently, in particular, that climate change is having the biggest effect on people's lives in the global south as well. I mean, would you like to elaborate on that connection, if there is one there? Yeah, I mean, I think all of all of these questions really have their roots in historic, long-term structural exploitation and oppression. And if you look at the countries that are struggling with uh, basic services like education and health, you're also looking at countries with very low access to resources to be able to build resilience into their public infrastructure, into their systems. Um, and, and at the heart of that is um, centuries of uh, resource extraction from colonial powers, um, which have you know, very intentionally brought most of the wealth from those countries into, into the global north. Um, so a lot of what we're seeing today is, is absolutely a consequence of those uh, asymmetries in power that persist today in the form of massive accumulation of debt uh, and all of the kind of st structural financial systems that, that have been set up to, to ultimately uh, bend economies in favor of, uh, of uh, Northern financial interests. I think that's starting to shift. We are seeing a, a huge discussion now about decolonizing education, about decolonizing aid, decolonizing wealth. Um, but the fact remains that uh, the current economic system has not been set up in favor of, of being able to provide for the basic needs of, of people in, in the poorest regions of the world. Then you put onto that the fact that climate change is impacting countries around the world. Um, but, you know, in the U.S., they have a bigger budget to be able to rebuild after a wildfire or to pick up the pieces after a hurricane. You know, in a country like Malawi, they're still picking up the pieces of uh, the the impacts of hurricane of the cyclone Freddie that that hit um, killing many people and the the resources just aren't there to be able to um, you know protect people from from the kinds of increasing weather extremes that we're seeing and a good friend of mine Paul Lynch who has been on the podcast as well actually was just doing some work in Malawi and has seen the direct effect of that on the education system mm -hmm. I mean on one hand schools are literally knocked down so children can't go to schools or roads are demolished. And on the other hand, there's higher risk of disease, death in the community, and these things all, all impact access to education as well. Yeah, well, let's talk about the framework. I, I see that it highlights opportunities for leveraging the role of education in wider climate change, disaster risk, and environmental efforts, and it identifies gaps in evidence and practice. Can you elaborate a bit on this? Yeah, sure. Um... So I think that when we were looking uh, at what the key challenges seemed to be, we, we convened a number of our partner countries um, for a conference 
uh, actually at Wilton Park last year. And the key question on the table was, what do your education systems need in order to be more resilient to climate impacts and really be leveraged as uh, a foundation for stronger climate action in your context? And so from out of those discussions, I think what became very clear is that there is a lot of really good practice to build on. There is a very strong um, foundation of disaster risk management, of climate change education, um, but the approaches are still very siloed and fragmented. And they're not necessarily connecting the dots between each of these different uh, approaches. And so to move away from a kind of projectized siloed view of what's required to really advance education, we specifically took a systems lens. We said, okay, if you have a change in one area, it requires change across all of the areas in order to really be embedded at a systems level. So we need to ensure that uh, not only is there a strong uh, curriculum around climate change, we need to also ensure that the data systems are there to be able to track and monitor what's happening in communities when climate impacts hit. Um, we need the infrastructure to be conducive to learning and to, to learn in a whole school approach that actually brings in the natural environment and provides opportunities for students to be learning in, a, in an experiential way. Um, in order to do that, we need the policies and the plans to be aligned with that and to be supportive of investments in the right areas in terms of teacher training and development. Uh, to deliver that in the classroom. So there are seven dimensions to this framework, which basically um, look at how all of these pieces can and could be working together in order to strengthen um, the, 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 this notion of being climate smart. Um, that being said, I think the, um, the main contribution that we're hoping this report will provide is to open up a conversation between these different silos in support of ministries of education that actually have to look at their entire system and figure out what they can do uh, to strengthen their, their climate resilience. Um, for us, the, the climate smart education system is really uh, an, an ideal. Um, every country is gonna come at it with a different set of challenges, of resources and priorities. Um, and so this framework is not a, a checklist by any means. It's, it's really a framework to help host a conversation around where the opportunities are to strengthen climate resilience in and through education. That has um, very interesting parallels with um, a framework that I was helping to develop with UNESCO, which is all about the systems lens in a disability inclusion in education. I'm super interested about that conversation between people in different silos and ending that silo mentality. Where do you start when you're hoping to get such a conversation like that going? Do you take this framework that you've developed around to different stakeholders and bring everyone together and host a workshop? Or do you leave that up to the Ministry of Education to organize or something like that? What have you, where have you seen successes in this? Yeah, well, so the report was just launched in April. So I think we're at the very beginning of what is frankly a learning journey for all of us. I don't think anyone has got it right yet. And I don't think that that we really know what works yet. The evidence base is still quite thin in a lot of these areas. But we do know that there's good practice, that a lot of countries 
are showing the signs of, of what to do when it comes to intersectoral coordination across ministries or uh, to really ensuring that their, um, their finance is tracking where their climate investments are benefiting education. And so the report really tries to look to those good practice examples and then have a conversation about what that might look like in a, in a particular context. Now, as the Global Partnership for Education, we're a partnership and we're also a fund and we support wider policy dialogue processes at the national level around key system transformation priorities. Um, in complement to that work, we've launched an initiative called Climate Smart Education System Initiative, which is really a technical assistance approach to support ministries to, to, to kind of look at these different dimensions and think through where and how uh, they could develop their own roadmaps. Um, we're just piloting this work right now in, in Malawi, actually, as well as Zimbabwe. Um, hopefully our board, which is meeting in June, will um, approve scaling this support to more countries. Uh, but the idea is that we, we sit down together with directors of the Ministry of Education, but also ministries of environment and natural resources and climate change, ministries of disaster management, um, you know, the Department of Labor, you know, all of the different national government stakeholders uh, through a consultation around where and how there are interconnections between education and climate efforts at the policy and coordination level. Um, but then we also consult with civil society and, and um, private sector and different actors at the national level to get a picture of where there are capacity gaps in the system. And then we work with the ministry to identify which of those capacity gaps they'd like to tackle. And maybe it's integrating climate data into their MS systems, or maybe it's uh, creating a, an alignment policy between their disaster management response and their education contingency planning at the school level. Uh, but we kind of look to see where and how they're kind of low-hanging fruit for ministries to be able to strengthen their, um, their climate resilience. And this is really just the, the very beginning, I think, of, of the process. So we'll see as we uh, work with more countries what, what that looks like, where the kind of key emerging capacity gaps are. And then ultimately, we need to have um, a financing strategy because uh, there, there's a, a need to to really bring in resources to implement strategies at scale. Um, but we're we're just at the very beginning, so you'll have to invite me back next year, and we'll see how far we've we've come in all of these efforts. Fantastic! Yeah, no, let's book that in. That would be uh, really interesting to hear about. That ties in really closely. I mean, the the, the breaking down of silos and looking at through the systems lens ties in very nicely with how the, the three goals put forward in the framework are interrelated. That is protecting and advancing quality, relevant and equitable education, protecting the planet's life systems and promoting climate justice. I was going to ask if you could briefly expand on these goals and explain why it's so important we see them as connected. Yeah, sure. Well, I think actually to answer that question, you know, there there's maybe um, a deeper question, which is, you know, what type of world do we want to live in? And then what is the purpose of education in helping us achieve that? So I would say that the framework that, that we propose dares to say that we want a world where all learners can realize their potential, no matter the lottery of their birth. We want a world where we live, um, you know, compatible with all other life on earth and within her planetary boundaries. Um, and, and we want a world where uh, we work towards what is right and just and, and equal. Uh, 
And so from that point of view, um, you know, the, the three sort of intersecting goals of a climate smart education system are to protect and advance education, uh, including ensuring that there is educational continuity when uh, climate related events occur. We also want to make sure that education is a part of the climate solution and, and not promoting unsustainable ways of living on the planet. So we need an education that acknowledges that we're part of the planet's ecosystems, uh, that we live or die depending on the health of those ecosystems, um, and that we actually have an obligation to protect all living things on Earth, um, and that this basic principle um, is, is promoted through the kinds of education that we provide. You know, when we talk about human resilience in the same breath, we need to talk about the resilience of the life systems, which sustain uh, all of the creatures and the plants uh, that that live on on the earth. Um, and then finally, I mean, we talked a lot about the asymmetries of power, given the kind of historical relationships between nation states over the past 500 years. And ultimately, climate smart education systems have to be corrective, right? Um, we need to make sure that that uh, we're addressing environmental racism, historic oppression, the unequal plunder of resources, and, and having an education system that redresses these injustices. Um, that's that's a vision that 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 we set out in the framework, and I I, I think that in in some ways it's sort of the the guiding vision, um, understanding of course that the reality is this is going to take a huge amount of effort and a massive mindset shift to really achieve, um, but we have to start with a vision, otherwise we we won't won't ever know what we're working towards. Well, absolutely, and um, again, such strong links there between that work and I, I mean I love the phrase that we just have to think about what kind of world we want to live in right and this surely is what education should be for to try and pursue that world and we see this as well in the in conversations about equality and diversity in societies and fairness and equity mm -hmm. and speaking of you identify gender equality as particularly important in this context well, gender equality is is uh, a key principle of the Global Partnership for Education's work, and it's mainstreamed and hardwired into everything we do. Um, and so our work in supporting climate smart systems is no different. Um, I mean, a couple of reasons. I think the, the questions of sort of gender and, and climate change are really interconnected. So uh, first of all, climate change exacerbates the kind of pre-existing gender equity gaps. Um, you know, there, there's a, a huge body of knowledge that shows that actually women and girls are, are often the most vulnerable to climate change and often pay the highest prices in terms of um, loss of livelihoods, uh, child marriage, uh, and a number of the kind of negative consequences of climate fall on the shoulders of women and girls. Um, but on the other hand, there is a really positive correlation between girls' education and resilience. Um, and really the role of girls' education uh, is is critical to um, reducing vulnerability. So there's a kind of bi-directional relationship there between education, gender, and, and climate uh, resilience. Um, and women and girls actually are incredibly effective uh, climate uh, activists, right? There's a really positive correlation between women's civil uh, and political participation um, and, and the, the links to beneficial environmental outcomes. Um, and so actually, if we give women and girls the 
pathway to empowerment, uh, then I think we will actually see um, positive uh, outcomes in the world. There's one last thing though, which I think is a kind of um, almost a philosophical reason, which is that at the, at the root of gender inequality is the same mindset that has separated us from the, the life systems that we depend on and created these one up, one down power relationships. And so while um, we exploit our environment and, and take and take and take without looking at our interdependence on it, similarly, gender relations have enabled the kind of exploitation of other human beings. And so at the heart of, I think, both the crisis in gender inequality and the crisis of our environment is fundamentally a kind of separation between ourselves and that which is outside of us, which is an illusion because we're all totally interdependent. And I think that in gender justice and climate justice are two sides of the same coin. Uh, and we absolutely need to look at both of them as, as fundamentally interconnected issues. Absolutely. Um, now you encourage stakeholders in the education sector, the climate sector and in environment communities to provide their feedback on this framework and to get involved and collaborate with you. Firstly, why is this important? And secondly, how can people go about doing this? Yeah, sure. Thanks. I mean, I think that um, in many ways, we're all facing a future that is totally unpredictable. And, and climate change comes with a kind of unprecedented uncertainty. Right now, we're teaching our children for a world that we, we can't predict anymore. Um, and and so in, in, in this spirit, we really need to be uh, open to learning, open to adapting and changing. Uh, and, and I think in that sense, we've created this framework really as a kind of uh, skeleton structure um, from which we hope everyone can contribute. The, the framework is a systems level, um, but we are still missing evidence for what works. And actually, the, the framework itself outlines, you know, areas for future learning because we, we really don't know everything. Um, and so we want to see this as a starting point for a discussion that needs to happen, you know, in the education community and beyond, um, and then invite others to come in and collaborate, bring your knowledge, your good practice, um, help to, uh, to sort of elaborate the areas that we haven't gone into in a lot of detail in this report, um, because actually we're, we're all learning together about what's needed, and we need all of the best minds thinking together about um, what what more we can do and how we can support countries to do it. So how can people get involved? We would absolutely welcome people getting in touch with us at the, the GPE Secretariat. Um, I'm sure that you can share my contact information, but others also feel free to uh, email me at sbeardmore at globalpartnership.org. Um, you can go to our website. Uh, we have lots of blogs that you can comment on, um, but uh, we're also active on social media. So, you know, please feel free to, to reach out. Um, I also want to give a shout out to the Greening Education Partnership. UNESCO has just launched this, this huge partnership approach, bringing all of the um, environmental and education actors together to try to look at how they can support uh, an initiative to green education. And I think that that's gonna be a really helpful platform for, for all of us to dialogue um, across countries and communities to see what, what good practices out there, what could countries be doing, 
where there are really good innovations that actually could go to scale very easily. Um, and so I think that that's also a great great way for people to get involved and help uh, help inform this this important uh, conversation. Fantastic. I think listeners will be grateful for a chance to uh, contribute to such an interesting area of work and such an important area. Uh, before you go, I wanted to find out about your thoughts on the future of climate smart education systems. Are you positive? Are you hopeful for the future? Yeah, I mean, as a mom, I I have to be hopeful. You know, I I I don't think that there's uh, any way for me to not work towards a future of climate smart education and sustainability. You know, otherwise I wouldn't be able to get out of bed in the morning. Um, that being said, I'm I'm actually really encouraged because we are seeing an increasing political will behind this agenda. You know, we've been in conversations with the Green Climate Fund, which is the largest international climate finance mechanism, and they're very welcoming of bringing education proposals um, for for climate finance. We're in a really, really challenging um, moment right now. The global economy is contracting. Many countries are suffering under very uh, large um, debt burdens. The education budgets are shrinking. Aid is being cut. So I I don't want to paint too rosy a picture. Uh, We need everyone to mobilize behind this agenda. But I think that we, we know what's necessary. And there are countries that are showing us how it can be done well. Um, So we have the answers, we have the solutions, we have growing political will, and it's going to take all of us to make sure that we're actually investing in this agenda so that there are resources available to make it happen, uh, make it a reality. Um, So thank you for letting me come here and and, uh, mobilize your audience to to fight the good fight. Um, I think that there's, there's really no other choice. We need education to be climate smart, and that's the century we're looking at ahead um, that's demanding this of us. That was Sarah Beardmore. My thanks to her for joining me today. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Goal 4, why not share it around? You can also subscribe and listen to a new episode every Wednesday. I'll see you next week.